How's everybody doing today? We doing well? Uh, spring is in the air, right? I mean, the weather has been phenomenal. And we're in this season of Lent. And that's exactly what Lent in Latin means. It means spring. Uh, but for, for us as Christ followers, uh, this is a season when we set out on a journey, a 40-day journey that leads to the cross. And as we heard in our call to worship today uh, from Philippians 2, this journey for us is one that mimics Jesus' journey to the cross, going down, becoming small, becoming less, of laying our life down, stop living for ourselves. And so John's gospel, too, because of where we are, allows us to make this 40-day journey with Jesus and his journey to the cross. So just by way of review, man, last week was just such a gift to just uh, sit here and, and, and take in that, that teaching. Um, this journey for Jesus starting to intensify. And uh, I gave you a picture that you could put in your Bible. I don't know if you still have it, so you can also look at it in PowerPoint. But let me just walk you through this. Um, John 13 through 17, four chapters speak to Jesus' time in the upper room with his disciples, and that's where the blue circle is. This is a, a depiction of what Jerusalem would have looked like in the first century, um, and, and Jews from all over the world are gathering, descending upon Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Uh, that last night together, they're celebrating Passover together, and that celebration quickly turned into a farewell party because Jesus tells his disciples, look guys, I'm leaving you. And then he explains all of that and pastors them through that and gives them hope about what the future looks like for them. Then they go out into the night and they're making their way to Gethsemane. And to do so, you can see from the picture that they actually have to go through the temple. Gethsemane is the thing in orange, and the temple is that big square building. Um, that's the courtyard, and then the building itself is God's house. In fact, Jews in that time referred often to the temple as the vine, because God's people were plugged into that. And I think it's in this space where Jesus teaches John 15, I am the vine, I am the true vine, I am the true temple. And now you are to not just remain in that building, but you are to remain in me, relationally. And from that place, I do believe that's also the place where Jesus prays this priestly prayer over the disciples, which we looked at in John chapter 17. And then if you look at John chapter 18, verse 1, you can just see Jesus being in that temple. And then it says, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley, which is that yellow line. Um, and then on the other side of that was the garden. And that's the orange circle. Now, actually, the garden is only mentioned in John's gospel, that word. The other three Gospels just call it Gethsemane because Gethsemane is not really a place, it's a thing. Gethsemane means olive press. And that makes sense because Gethsemane is at the mount, is at the base of the Mount of Olives. The whole thing is a garden. 
And so Gethsemane then probably speaks because these olive presses in this day were put in, into a grotto or into a cave uh, to keep the olive oil cold enough uh, so it would stay fresh and pure. Um, so Gethsemane is a cave. They, they, they find this cave. In fact, uh, there's one cave that has been found uh, located right next to what we call the Garden of Gethsemane. And so this is likely... Uh, the grotto in which Jesus and his disciples spent those moments together before he's arrested. Because then the arrest. And as we learned last week, Rome is not messing around, but nor is Jesus. Rome, led by Judas, comes with a cohort. A cohort is 600 soldiers. Imagine that. That's more soldiers than people in this room right now. And so you have to ask yourself, why is Rome coming with so much power? Well, because one to three million Jews are camping out in Jerusalem. There's no holiday inns or Marriott's. And they're camping out on hills like the Mount of Olives. There's thousands of pilgrims out there. And this is a holiday that celebrates their independence from a pharaoh and all that zealot passion that exists in these, in these Jews of this time, they're coming with their power. But think about this. As we learned last week, one word from Jesus and all 600 of them take a bow. They fall to the ground. And this is John's way, better yet, Jesus' way of showing us that Jesus is not a helpless victim in this. It's like he just told his disciples, he says, I lay my life down. No one lays my life down for me. I lay it down on my own accord. So the arrest, the beating, the cross, this is all according to the plan of Jesus. Now in today's text begins the trial. Verses 12 to 13, they bring Jesus first to the house of Ananias, and Ananias was the former high priest. He's not the current high priest. The current high priest is his son-in-law, Caiaphas. But here's how you need to see Ananias. He is the puppet. Caiaphas is the puppeteer. Jesus is brought before the most powerful Jew in all the world. And just think across between someone who has the power of the Pope and throw a little Al Capone in that. And, and you have a nice, okay? And so Jesus is brought to his courtyard and this here is wonderful uh, gift done by the best archeologist showing us what the upper city looked like in the first century during the time of Jesus. And the upper city is where all the priests live. Uh, they lived literally in these palatial mansions. And down to your bottom left is the house of Ananias and also Caiaphas all joined together. I show you that so that if you look closely, you can get a sense of how big this courtyard is. 
Because what we have going on in our text, it zooms in to Jesus, then it zooms out and it zooms into Peter, and then it zooms back into Jesus, and then out again and goes back to Peter. And you could start to think that they're miles away. But they're not. Jesus, I'm sorry, Peter, with this unnamed disciple are brought right into the courtyard. I don't think Peter is more than 10 or 15 yards away from everything that's going on with Jesus and the trial. And that's why I love this painting, because you can see Jesus uh, about 10 or 15 yards away looking at Peter as Peter is warming himself in that courtyard around the fire. And what John is doing here in laying Peter and Jesus side by side and zooming in first to Jesus, then to Peter, uh, back to Jesus, then back to Peter, John wants us to see that both Jesus and Peter are on trial. They're both being questioned. They both have their life on the line And they're both essentially asked this question, who are you? This week we're going to look at Peter. Next week we're going to look at Jesus. Who is Peter? Now, if you asked Peter that question, I can almost guarantee you how he'd answer that question. Peter would answer that question by saying, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because for three and a half years, this is what Peter's life has been consumed with. This man gave up everything to follow Jesus. We have to know this about Peter. Because this is at the core of who Peter is. And the other thing that the gospel writers give us, more than on any of the other disciples is they give us so much data on Peter. Again, surely I don't, I, I don't think they knew that he would one day turn into the Pope because the data that they give us, I mean, there's no fake news going on with Peter. It's, you see almost this Jekyll Hyde kind of thing happening within Peter. I mean, he has some spectacular moments quickly followed by, well, let me just say something maybe less than spectacular. Um, I mean, think about the night on the sea, the storm. All of a sudden, they see the ghost, and they start to realize, wait a second, that's not just a ghost. They realize it might be Jesus. And in that moment, Peter just yells out, Lord, if that's you, would you call me to come in fact, that, that, that word come is the first word that, that Peter heard Jesus say to him. It changed the whole course of Peter's life. Peter, come follow me. In fact, when Jesus said those words, Peter knew exactly what Jesus was saying. He knew that Jesus was saying, Peter, I want you to drop everything in your life right now. And I, I want you to follow me because I believe in you. I actually believe that you could become 
just like me, because that's what discipleship was in the first century. A disciple in the first century with their rabbi, they, they, they gave up everything to be with their rabbi, to follow their rabbi, to park their life behind the rabbi, because the goal of this was that one day they would become just like the rabbi. They would walk as the rabbi walked. And this is the driving passion of Peter's life. It's to become like Jesus. So when Peter thinks, wow, that could be Jesus out there walking on water. The thing that goes on in his mind is, does this whole discipleship thing, learning to walk like you, Jesus, even apply to this? Tell me to come, Lord, if it's you. And Jesus says, Peter, come. And Peter has one of the most spectacular moments. He gets out of the boat and he walks on water. He's one of two people that we know of who's ever done that. But his faith quickly turns into faithlessness, and he starts to sink, and Jesus has to coach him up with some tough love. Or how about the time when Jesus and, and his disciples are... are, are almost ready to set, make way to, to Jerusalem for that last time. And, and Jesus, before he says, guys, who do you say that I am? And Peter doesn't even flinch. He doesn't even wait a second. He just bursts out. Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the anointed king. You're the son of God. What another spectacular moment for Peter. I mean, that just flowed from his heart. But then just moments after that, as, as Jesus describing to them, okay, now that you know who I am, let me tell you what I'm, I'm going to do. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And this isn't fitting into Peter's paradigm of who he thinks Jesus is or what Jesus came to unleash. And he's like, Jesus, that's crazy talk. You're not going to suffer and die. And Jesus literally has to rebuke him and say, dude, you sound satanic right now. Now in our text for today, when these Romans come to arrest Jesus, it's Peter who rises up with knife in hand to defend Jesus. In fact, think about what Peter said just hours before this. He says to Jesus, Jesus, wherever you go, I'm going to go. But Jesus says to him, look, Peter, you can't go where I'm going. In fact, before the night is over, you're going to deny me three times. And when that Rooster crows, it'll be a reminder of what I just said. And then Peter says next to Jesus, he says, Jesus, no, I will lay my life down for you. And then I think even a little bit later in the night when, when, when Jesus uh, starts talking about greater love has no one than this, to lay their life down for their friends, he's quoting Peter in some ways. And I bet Peter is just kind of sitting there thinking to himself, yep, that's me. He's talking about me right now. And then later, still later that night, he gets his chance. All 600 of those soldiers come and Peter has his knife out. And it's game on. And I don't care what you think about Peter. Obviously, he still doesn't get Jesus. He still doesn't understand the kind of kingdom that Jesus is unleashing. But you still have to say that is a spectacular moment for Peter. He just, boom, he's taking a guy's... This man loves Jesus. 
Jesus is his master, his Lord. And now we come to our text today, and I want you to put yourself in Peter's shoes because this whole night has been horrific from even the time when Jesus starts washing their feet and and Peter says something dumb and Jesus has to rebuke him there to everything that happened in, in the garden and all the disciples have deserted Jesus, but not Peter. Peter's still hanging around. Peter's still following Jesus. Peter's still doing the discipleship thing. And he's not even following at a distance, but he's dangerously close because in his mind, he's a disciple. He's gonna lay it all down. And then it happens. Verse 17, he's warming himself around the fire. There's some other people there. And one of them looks at him and says, are you a disciple of this man? Peter says, no, I am not. Again, in verse 25, are you a disciple of Jesus? Peter says, I am not. And John is doing something in the narrative here because when Jesus uh, accusers come to arrest Jesus and they say, are you Jesus? What does Jesus say? Two times. Jesus says, I am, I am. And now two times Peter says, I am not. And what you have in, in, in the narrative, and John is doing this, it's like he's, he's, he's zooming the camera in first on Peter, then he's zooming out of Peter and then zooming back on Jesus. And then he'll zoom out of Jesus and he'll go back to zooming back on Peter. And he's intertwining these two stories together, first of all, to bring proximity, but he's also laying Peter and Jesus side by side because he wants us to see that they are both on trial, but how Jesus stands up to his questioners and denies nothing, but how Peter cowers and denies everything. And the clincher then is in verse 26, where you now have someone who's come around that little fire where they're getting warm, who is not just an eyewitness in the garden, but happens to be a cousin to the guy that Peter, Peter cut the guy's ear off. And he now says, I saw you there. And Peter the third time says, no, I'm not a disciple of that man. Now, John is pretty nice to Peter here. Because all four of the gospel accounts talk about this episode. And the other three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, say that Peter's response this third time, the passion was building by the third time. Peter literally says, damn him. I do not know him. And I think we know that Jesus heard Peter say that because Luke's gospel gives us the detail that Jesus at that moment turned and he looked right at Peter. Like, dude, really? You don't know me? Listen, no disciple in that first century context would ever curse the rabbi. This was seen as a father-son relationship. 
a rabbi called his disciples, my true sons. A disciple called his rabbi, my father. Imagine someone you just intensely love and saying something like that right before they're about to die, knowing that's the last thing they heard you say. Peter fails. He fails miserably. He fails massively. He made a promise. He said, I will lay my life down for you, Jesus. But even more than just those words, his whole life is a promise to Jesus. And now in this moment, he does the unthinkable and he fails on his promise. As I was thinking about this this week, I just have to just be honest here. Of all the disciples, my heart just gravitates to Peter. When I look at Peter, I feel like I'm looking in the mirror. Uh, he's a bit impulsive. He's passionate. He's sometimes outspoken. Sometimes he says things he's not supposed to say. Uh, I already had that happen to me this morning in the first service. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but at the same time, he's thoughtful. And I just think of how many times, too, I've made promises to Jesus only to fail. How many times I've told Jesus, Jesus, I'm not going to do that again, only to fail. And I understand when Jesus says the, 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 the spirit is willing, but, but the flesh is weak. And, and this is Peter. But I wonder today how many of us really understand the importance of fidelity, faithfulness, loyalty at all costs, of actually being able to commit and then be true to those commitments. Because I look at our world right now, and I, more and more, our world scorns, what, scorns those qualities. I mean, our, our world today makes a mockery of commitment. Our, our world prides itself on making no commitments. Keep all your options over, open, um, whether it's commitments to people or relationships, commitments to beliefs, convictions. And I think it's, there's some scary implications here. In fact, I think this is one of the reasons why so much is unraveling right now before our very eyes. The whole basis for community in all its different forms is forged upon commitment for people to be able to put a stake in the ground and to say, I am committed, and then being true to that commitment. I mean, no commitment, no fidelity, loyalty. There is no community. You can't be a friend. You, you, you can't be a teammate. You can't be a husband or a wife unless you are someone who can put a stake in the ground and commit. Who can say, like Peter said, I will lay my life down for you. 
and then be a person who can be true to that. I mean, that's the bedrock of any meaningful, sustainable, healthy relationship. I mean, my marriage is lots of things. It's been lots of things. It's been through all kinds of different kind of waters. But I'll tell you what holds Libby and I together. It's not the stuff that we watch from Hollywood. It's the simple fact that Libby and I both made a commitment, one love, one lifetime, and come hell or high water. We're going to be true to that commitment. She knows that about me. I know that about her. And I have to say, out of that kind of commitment flows, I think, something better than any movie. I was even thinking about Crossroads this week and just thinking about this. A lot of you don't know this. I mean, our church is going on 18, maybe 19 years old. I'll get that right next time. I'm sorry I don't know right now. Um, (laughs) But in our early days, I mean, this thing was unraveling and falling apart. And apart from the grace of God and the fidelity and the loyalty of some of the people that are actually even in this room right now, That's what sustained this church. And see, it's not even just relationships or or community that are at stake. It, it, It even gets more personal than this because our very identity is at stake. You can't possibly have an identity. You can't know who you are if you can't put a stake in the ground and commit and then be true to that commitment. Who's Peter? Look at verse 10. Let's get the sword out. Is he that guy? Or is he the guy in verse 25? I don't know him. Who is Peter? How can Peter even know? Who are you? And how do you even begin to answer that question? Before I was... uh, a pastor at Crossroads, I spent at least 10 years in ministry with junior high and high school students. Um, I've worked with hundreds of students, and it used to kind of drive me crazy when a student would say to me, Rod, I just got to go find myself. Because I, I, I knew what that meant. I, I knew what they were saying. They were saying, I have to get rid of all responsibility, all commitments, all my beliefs, all my obligations, and I need to embark on this journey of being true to my feelings, being true to my desires, because in their mind, feelings, desires is who they really were. And in some ways, I feel like our whole culture has become adolescent. Not only are we driven by our feelings and our desires, but we have become the sum total of our feelings and desires. But think about how fickle our feelings really are, our desires. Think about how our feelings constantly contradict each other. How one moment they're this, the next moment they're that, and then you have this desire for this and this desire for that. You feel this, but you feel that, and how they not only contradict each other, but they war against each other. See, what binds a person together, what holds a life together, what forms and shapes an identity, it's our capacity to commit to people, to put that stake in the ground and then be true to that commitment. 
Commitments to people, relationships, community, a team, an organization, a belief, convictions. And see, really what we're talking about now is integrity. Integrity and fidelity and loyalty, they, 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 they all go hand in hand because think about where integrity comes from. Math 101, we learned about integers, right? You remember that whole time of life? Uh, integer is, 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 is different than a fraction, and integer is a whole number. Apply that to integrity. Integrity means that you are a whole person. It means that you're the same person in private that you are in public, that you're the same person at work that you are at church, you're the same person on Monday morning that you are Sunday morning. You're the same person here and over there. You're the same person that you are in social media with everybody else. Your walk is the same as your talk. Your talk is the same as your walk. There's consistency in every facet of your life. See, because without this consistency, our life is just broken up into all these fractions and fragments, and then we just find ourselves being blown away by circumstances, emotions, feelings, lust, you name it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I've been reading him more and more. Letters and Papers from Prison, definitely top five book for me. It's his diary. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a pastor who was uh, eventually arrested and placed in a Nazi concentration camp, and he died there. Uh, and he, he journaled so much, and that's what letters and papers in prison um, are, are his journal entries during that time when he was in prison in a concentration camp. Listen to this journal entry. This is kind of almost right before he dies. He says, we have grown up with the experience of our parents and grandparents that a man can and must plan, develop, and shape his own life, and that life has a purpose about which a man must make up his mind, and a woman, of course, and which then pursue with all his strength. But we have learned by experience that we cannot plan even for the coming day because our life, in contrast to that of our parents, has become formless and fragmentary. But he says, in spite of all that, I can only say that I have no wish to live in any other time except for our own, even though it is so inconsiderate of our outward well-being, because we realize more clearly than ever before that the world lies under the wrath and grace of God. We read in Jeremiah 45, thus saith the Lord, behold what I have built up, I'm breaking down. What I have planted, I am plucking up. And then he ends this journal entry was saying, do not seek great things for yourself. Seek them not, for behold, I am bringing evil on all flesh, but I will give your life as a prize in all the places you may go. But when he says that we have learned by experience that we cannot even plan for the coming day because our life, in contrast to that of our parents, has become formless, even fragmentary. Isn't that a description of our world today? Our country has become formless, fragmentary. Our communities, our families, our churches, 
our schools, our marriages, even our own selves have become formless, fragmentary, split apart. And I've watched so many people over my years of ministry, young and old, destroy themselves, their lives, and, and hurt the people around them by barking up that tree of, I just have to be true to my desires, true to my feelings. And they're doing this because they're in search for an identity, not knowing that the identity is the very thing that they are forfeiting in that search. If you and I, cannot put a stake in the ground and make commitments and be true to those commitments. We will have no idea who we are and our lives will unravel and fall apart. And that is exactly what is going on in Peter. His life is unraveling and it's falling apart. What's holding your life together? Or is your life unraveling and falling apart? Man, this is where God thank you that this is not the end of the story. Because this could be really discouraging, but it's not the end. Peter is not Judas. They both failed miserably. They both have hit rock bottom. But for Judas, his failure ruined him. For Peter... Listen to this, all you fellow, fellow failures. <laughs> His failure made him. Because all you have to do is go from John to the next book, and the book of Acts, and Peter just literally weeks after this enormous failure is a completely changed man. And he's not even just a changed man, but he becomes the leader of the whole Christian movement. The biggest failure becomes the greatest leader. And it's failure that propels Peter to greatness. Peter becomes the greatest leader because he's the greatest failure. My failure, fellow failures think about that. See, God can work with failure. That God uses failure. He uses it to break us so he can remake us into Peter's and Paul's and David's and Moses. They're all made great through failure. And what Peter shows us in this story and, and, and in the rest of John's gospel and in the rest of the New Testament is how failure can be turned into greatness. Because I think this is pretty clear about Peter. Before this failure, I think Peter deep down viewed himself as the man, the, the best disciple, the first one to speak, the first one to get out of a boat, the first one to have a sword in his hand. He even says it. He says, these guys may fail you, Jesus, but not me. I love you. And that's not hard to read between the lines and see within Peter at that point is a guy who's pretty self-important and self-righteous. And I think Peter's whole identity of being the best is wrecked in this moment of failure. 
I hate it. I hate it that I need to be wrecked. But we need to be wrecked sometimes. And Peter's wrecked. I think he fails at a level that he never thought himself capable of. But what this means is he can no longer see himself as the best. Instead, you know what Peter sees himself as? I, Peter, chief of sinners. It's what we are. And it's because of failure that his pride is actually shattered. And he's probably now for the first time starting to realize that through his goodness and his own performance, he can't save himself by being the best, by being the most outspoken, by being the first guy out of the boat. And sadly, but sometimes only failure is the thing that can really shatter our pride, our self-righteousness, our self-importance, because we all are really just sinners. And Jesus says, until we become poor in spirit, until we become poor spiritually, and poor in terms of our, our, our righteousness, we're never going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is one thing I can almost guarantee every person in this room has failed. Has failed miserably, has failed massively. And change can only begin when we have the humility and the courage to face our failure. Not blame it away, not be the victim, but to just stare it right in the eyes and to look at it for what it is. How do you treat failure? Do you make too much of it? Does it destroy you? Does it debilitate you? Does failure t turn you into your life into this massive tailspin? I've seen it with people. I've even seen it in my own life, where you could just spend hours, days, weeks. For some people, it's years of just living in self-loathing and self-hatred. Do you see that that's pride? That you're taking yourself way too seriously. Or maybe some of you just make light of your failure. You just kind of sweep your failure under the rug and you rationalize it away and you say, no big deal, everybody else is doing it. Do you not see, though, that, that, that failure, it, it deeply hurts Christ? Our failures hurt other people, especially the people we love. Our, our, our failures hurt our own self. This is why we need to own our failure, why we need to look at it and see it. And this is the difference between Peter and Judas last week. Peter owns his failure, all of it. And we're going to see that as we go through John's gospel. But just owning failure is not still enough to change us because we still have to take our failure somewhere. There, there, there needs to be a place where we can take our failure and have it change us. And this is why John places Jesus right in the heart of our text. Because Jesus is not just standing on trial. This is the part that pricks me. Jesus is standing in Peter's place. 
Jesus is standing in your place. He's standing in my place. Think about Peter. Here's Peter. He, he's the faithless one. Just warming himself around the fire. Peter gets to go scotch-free. Here's Jesus, the all-faithful one, being tortured and sentenced to die. Here's what's going on. Jesus is getting everything faithless Peter deserved so that Peter could get everything that righteous, faithful Jesus deserved. And that is the gospel. And that's what this failure has to preach to his heart every day. That all of our failure, not just a part of it, and it doesn't even matter how great our failure is. Look how great Peter's failure is. That all of our failure can be placed on Christ so that all of his righteousness can be placed on us. As Paul said, he, Christ, who knew no sin, became our sin. He became our failures so that we could become the righteousness of God. This is the only place in the world where we can bring our failures and where failure actually is going to make us greater than what we were before because that's what we see in Peter. We see a failure that should have devastated him. It should have destroyed him. It should have taken him out. Instead, Jesus turns that failure on its head because that's what the gospel does. It turns everything on its head, even failure, so that failure becomes the catalyst for greatness in Peter's life. And that can be true of our lives. So I don't know how you respond to failure. I don't know this morning what failure has done to you. I'm sure in a room this size, some of you today, because of your failure, just see your life on plan B, plan C, plan D. You think that because you failed, your life is never going to be the same. Your marriage is never going to be the same. Your future is never going to be the same. But here's what we learned from Peter. That if we own up to our failure, all of it, and we plunge it all into the grace and mercy of God and his grace in Jesus Christ and repent of it, our life will never be on plan C or plan B. That Jesus will get our life on plan A. Come to him. <laughs> They're failure. He's not some unapproachable God in the skies. He became weak and bruised and humiliated so that our humiliation, we can meet the God of, of the universe in his humiliation. And our failure can be placed on him so his righteousness can be placed on us. This morning, we're not going to have communion for everybody. But if you're just in a spot of self-loathing, self-hatred, feeling like you're such a failure, that your life is so ruined because of it, and you want to take that failure and plunge it into Jesus, meet me at the communion station.
because that's a real meal that Jesus offers us. His body was broken. His blood was shed. And that is literally eating the love of God that is in Christ. And there is nothing, even our failure, can't separate us from that love. God, sometimes I wonder, Lord, if this is almost too good to be true. But God, this is not a fairy tale. It's what you planned from the beginning. Because you know what we are. You know what we would become. And you knew the one thing that we needed to be all and to become all that you made us to be. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whatever believe in him, plunge their life on him, would receive life. In Jesus' name, amen.